Hello, and welcome to the New Bohemians podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Van Orney. Thank you for joining us on this episode. I'm so happy to connect with you in conversation about our community. Well, I'm so excited about my guest who's joining me uh, in person. That's what we get to do if you're vaccinated. Also, um, I should have saved the nice cracking sound of this cold can on a very hot day here in Iowa, but um, currently enjoying some Big Grove Brewery. They are not sponsoring this. I'm just a fan of their, what I like to think of, of a lawn mowing beer, Easy Eddie. And certainly my next guest and I have bonded over a lot of politicking and brews. So I'm going to go ahead and welcome current supervisor of Johnson County, Iowa, John Green. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. It's so nice to be here. I always enjoy getting to talk with this man that I, I deem the cowboy. So if I get to hang out with the cowboy, it's a good day. Well, I wanted to um, have you start off, John, by talking about um, where you came from, your background, because I know that you're not original uh, to Iowa, but we are so happy and lucky to have you here. Oh, well, that's very kind. Uh, my father's family's been down in southeastern Johnson County for a bajillion years. Uh, I don't really know much of my family history on that side, but I do know that we've been in the county since the mid-19th century. Uh, my mother's from Cheyenne, so that's where I was born. My dad was in the Air Force. He was stationed there. and So that explains how I came to be from Cheyenne and then moved back here, or moved here, rather, when I was like four. Uh, so my dad and we could be around his folks as they got old, so they'd have support and family, and they have since died. I now live in their house and, uh, you know, doing the same thing for my parents as they get old. And you know what? We share that in common. Mm -hmm. um, we are coming to you from my childhood home. Um, this at one point in time used to be my father's room and I've repurposed it into my office slash makeup room slash mini library. I don't know. It's a lot of things, plant room. Um, it's got all my plant babies in here. Um, but yes, so welcome. I know that we have shared, um, some of that. I don't know if we want to call it frustration, um, appreciation, but that home renovation is something that's... <laughs> constantly um, on our agendas, but also something that like it's important, you know, since we live in our family homes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, your your little studio library office is much nicer than mine. <laughs> I've still got holes in the drywall where I had to rip sheetrock out because it was moldy from the roof leaking, which unfortunately I know so many folks in these parts know intimately. And yeah, it's just a matter of chiseling away at it. I'm I got to call the bank and see if I can get 10 grand out of the mortgage to have the foundation taken care of because you got to have a good foundation before you start doing anything else, which That's right. is why I still have holes in the walls. Yep. Yeah, no, I, I get that. And actually, um, today we're recording this on the one year anniversary of the derecho that happened here in Iowa, but specifically really beat the heck out of Cedar Rapids. And um, we'll get into a little bit of John and I's story and connection on that, but I do agree, um, and I'm in a similar situation. I have, for a variety of reasons, whether it's lack of materials, contractors, money, time, all of the things, I still have plenty of holes in my walls. I'm patched up for now. 
I'm hoping it hangs in there with me while I try and get my end, uh, you know, uh, started. But yeah, it's uh, a lot of us are in that space. Mm -hmm. And realistically, you know, I think we always try to be very resilient uh, spiritually, mentally, um, physically, but it really sucks. Mm -hmm. Resiliency is a double-edged sword for sure, because intrinsically part of it is that tragedy or something terrible happened that you then, you know, rebounded from. And um, in an ideal state, we just wouldn't have gone through that ever. I think the flood of 93 and 2008 and 16 and 18 were plenty for us, Mm -hmm. but we all know that climate change continues to come on with fervor. And uh, so then we ended up with this derecho. And um, I know that you knew about this because of the history from your previous municipal work with Lone Tree, where you served as mayor. Mm-hmm. What do you remember uh, when when uh, the news hit of the Cedar Rapids derecho, Iowa derecho? Um, what did you remember from your days of, of mayoring in Lone Tree? Well, I mean, that was like the furthest thing from my mind because my partner, Eleanor, was up north at Backbone Camping with her family. And so everything had gone to shit. Communications were blacked out. You know, it was eerie because most of the radio stations were still on the air, but they were dead air. Yeah. Not static, just nothing. Uh, probably because of COVID. So they had had their automation plugged in, but then nobody could get into the studios. And so the automation software had nothing to do. So it was just dead air across the spectrum. I couldn't get a hold of her. So I hop in the car and, you know, I've seen bad storms and stuff before. And I'm coming up through the metro area. I'm looking around. It looks like apocalyptic. Yeah. Uh, You know, redial, redial, redial. When I can get service, which is spotty. And then get up to the campsite. They're lounging around eating pizza, drinking beers. They had gotten a sprinkle. They had no idea what was going on. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, that was my immediate concern. And then, you know, I'd had to raise hell with my day job to get the afternoon off with zero notice. And so then I had to scurry back. And they're like, oh, well, by the way, could you stop in Marion on your way home? Because we have a co-location data center there. And this place is a bomb shelter. Uh, they've got, I think, 10-foot flood walls. They've got pumps, generators, redundant everything. You've got to go through heavy security to get in. And even they had been knocked off the air. Uh, you know, this is some serious stuff. And so that was my immediate stuff. It was worried about people I love and then having work up my backside. And it's like, there's only so much I can do, you know. Uh, yeah. And I, and I can say my... So one thing that was really unusual is that um, that day I was was trying to be as green as possible. Uh, No pun intended. (laughs) Maybe. But so I had checked uh, the weather that morning and was thinking about riding my bike into work. Yep, exactly. Um, John was doing a bicycling motion there um, for those who can't see us right now. But um, I was, tr- I was going to ride my bike into work that morning. And then I remember I had an appointment in Hiawatha and, you know, cut to the chase here, folks. Like I'm not that fit. So, um, I thought, no, I- I'll actually just take my hybrid instead. Um, because I-, I wasn't really up at the end of the day to have, you know, like a 30 minute there, like one way. Um, so our, you know, return trip, um, to go to my appointment. 
So that being said, I, I knew that the weather was supposed to be okay. Mm -hmm. um, if it had not been for my scheduling change, I would have ridden that in and I might have had an easier time getting home. But then I also, when I got 30 minutes of warning from an inner office email um, from our security department saying, you know, heavy storms ahead, I had almost this little like parental, you know, angel on my shoulder saying, hey, remember to put your car away. Mm -hmm. And in healthcare, typically all the ramps are safe for patients. So I conferred with the security uh, director, got permission to park in the ramp, um, went and moved my car, you know, before, uh, you know, I guess I should, not before, but after checking with all my staff to make sure that they knew that they, you know, had that same opportunity to move their vehicles if appropriate and went and relocated. And I swear by the time that I got out, put it in the ramp and came back, you know, everybody was being asked to get away from the windows. We had these massive windows in the lobby. And then, you know, it was maybe like 30 minutes of darkness and a lot of grumbling. Um, and then we kind of went outside and, you know, folks were getting dismissed to go check on their homes because there were early reports that there was a lot of damage. And I was like lifting trees off of people's cars. I mean, I'm not saying like 100 year old trees, but, you know, bigger trees where I just remember snatching up this person next to me. And I didn't even know this gentleman and was like, hey, you look like you can, I think we can handle this together. And we lifted it up up enough and gave, you know, our uh, colleague communication to say, just back out. Mm -hmm. Like when we do this, counted it out and they were able to get out. But man, it was, it was crazy. Just, you know, lines of cars. And then shortly after on my walk back um, to, you know, after surveying the outside, the ambulance noises started. Mm -hmm. And I know today at the press conference, we were giving communications and it was, you know, egregious how much more mm -hmm. calls for service we had than a normal day. Whereas uh, in comparison, you know, a hundred would have been a really high day for, you know, for an hour. And this was like 500, you know, um, I think CRPD had a number in the 900, something like that. What I'm saying is this was, you know, all hands on mm -hmm. deck. And I know that you remember that that history from Lone Tree. So what did that look like, though, when this happened there? Because you said that you knew the term derecho, mm -hmm. whereas a lot of us were I, I know I was saying it derecho mm -hmm. for a long time. And maybe it's because I was so fixated on how wretched this was. Mm -hmm. But uh, it took me a long time to even, you know, learn the correct pronunciation of this word. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these are not a new occurrence, but uh, last year. It was just bad. It was a terrible derecho, and just the the path that it took coming through such a densely populated area, uh, it just added a hell of a lot of everything. And those numbers you were talking about from ambulance and police, the asking about my experience in municipal government, is you have to realize that those numbers are significantly depressed because the communication systems were so screwed up. There must have been, you know, for every call that they logged, there must have been two or three people that couldn't get through. And yeah. so, so you're not only looking at super saturation of the calls compared to a normal day, but you, I mean, it's like our COVID numbers, unfortunately. it's We're only seeing what's getting through, what's getting That's reported, right. what's getting tested. And by the time I got up here, I knew it was going to be bad, but it was still just jaw-dropping to see it in person because Lone Tree's 1,500 people, and, you know, we took it on the chin in 98. 
Oh, and it, it sucked, but even when it's that intimate and personal, the scale was just so different up here a year ago. And you see that in, you know, you folks trying to recover and rebuild that resilience you're talking about. You know, the storm that we had in 98 didn't generate nearly the sort of media attention because Lone Tree's a small little town. And thank God nobody was killed. I don't think there were any real serious injuries. But it just, you know, we get a lot of weather in these parts, whether it's tornadoes, floods, whatever. Uh, the scale just wasn't there. We still got fortunate that a lot of people showed up and, you know, helped us get things put back together. But it was, I remain gobsmacked at what it looked like a year ago to the hour. Yeah. And, you know, I think for me, it was, it was really humbling because I was at the time, um, you know, as a manager and had staff in the emergency department. And so, you know, I remember seeing CRFD come back and back and back again. And people were just flooding in, you know, to the emergency room. Um, it's unfortunate when there's any loss of life, but I suppose in some capacity, given the gravity of the storm, the fact that there were only three people that passed away, although their lives, you know, are still, it's, it's tragic that we lost them at all. Um, that was some kind of miracle. Mm -hmm. That being said, you know, there were just hordes of people coming in and actually that week alone, you know, that hospital had record breaking volumes in, in the history of them ever existing, mm -hmm. which I felt that, um, I remember seeing, um, my soccer coach from middle school is a firefighter and she probably came through 12 times. I'd see her jump out of, uh, you know, an, an engine. They'd swoop around, you know, she'd take a patient in. I'd see her come in the back of a flatbed of a truck in a variety of different capacities. Mm -hmm. And she just said, there's just, it's so bad out there. There's so many people. And I said, I don't want to see you anymore. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I knew that there were heroes amongst us like her who were back at it, making sure nobody was left behind. They were trying to get through everywhere that they could to bring everybody to safety, whatever that looked like. But, you know, uh, it's hard to imagine. Um, I know I've been, had the experience uh, with my late father of having been in a large city emergency room uh, when he had some, some uh, health issues. But this was the first time that that emergency room and I had been there uh, about a year at the time. That's the first time I've ever seen us wall to wall. I mean, we were calling, you know, on our uh, on our uh, monitors and saying, "Well, put them in recliner three mm -hmm. next to, you know, bed two, and I mean, all sorts of stuff. Any available chair that we could move into there. People were lined around the walls mm -hmm. uh, seeking treatment, and it just already we were, you know, really. Um, up to our necks in work and protocols and everything like that, um, trying to one, you know, figure out the, the generators, um, that we were on, uh, trying to figure out like relocate. I know I was MacGyvering stuff all over the place, mm -hmm. trying to, uh, readapt cords to make sure that any of our machines, cause again, you talk about the apocalyptic nature of it. Um, but the reality is because we become so dependent on technology, when we lose that power source, 
it's hard to go back to basics, back to paper. And so this is where communications, you know, broke down because we were also dependent on these internet based phones. Um, and we didn't have landlines. And so calling, trying, you said you were talking about, um, how many calls we knew about that could get through, but there were so many phones that didn't have enough battery life to survive, you know, the, the night and people were without power for weeks let alone trying to get the help they needed that day. Um, we were all trying to do the best they, that we could, but I was MacGyvering cords around the emergency room, you know, trying to make sure that we had enough power on the generators, let alone the fact that I was holding up camping lights because the bathrooms in the emergency room were not on generators, which was just kind of baffling to me. But, you know, in the moment you do what you need to have done. Um, it was wild. It was a wild experience. And that was all while I was getting messages from my brother who had come to check on me from North Liberty, which was generally okay. Mm -hmm. And he was telling me, Ashley, there's a tree through your roof. Ashley, there's a tree in your house. Like you need to come home. And I said, I can't leave. Like we are slammed mm -hmm. here at the emergency room. I'm where I am. Mm -hmm. um, it was truly for me, you know, this massive conundrum of both of my lives intersecting at once in full force. Mm -hmm. um, and I know for so many people, it was, you know, a, a moment, a, you know, a disaster that they will never forget in their lifetime, let alone the fact that roughly 30 minutes to an hour of storm of this thing we learned to call the derecho is causing a lifetime of impact of devastation. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Most of this has come up because of the pandemic, but uh, we keep seeing a lot of research about how impactful and how life-changing big traumatic events are to people. That in some cases, it rewrites our DNA because we are put under such stress and that these effects go on down through generations so not only do you have this bomb that dropped on Cedar Rapids, it was a surprise uh, for most folks. And it's amazing how much resilience you can stand up in just four or five hours if you know something bad is going to happen. You can make a plan so you know how to communicate with people or you know where we're going to meet up or whatever. But this was just, like you said, 30 minutes for so many folks. On top of it, you're in the midst of the pandemic. Right. Cedar Rapids has taken it in the teeth with flooding. Yep. And and that's a, a, a different sort of trauma because the derecho comes, kicks the shit out of you, and then it's gone. You've still got to pick up all the pieces, but at least it's gone, whereas the flooding can take so long to play out. There's the uncertainty. Is it going to, when is it going to crest? Uh, you know, are the levees going to hold? Can we get enough volunteers in? So it's just trauma on top of trauma and different kinds of trauma that just wear you down when you don't have the opportunity to prepare. It, and it's hard enough when you do have the opportunity to prepare. It ain't never a walk in the park. But yeah, it's it's been a test. And I hope that we continue to pay attention to the long-form outcomes uh, both in terms of, you know, getting your tree canopy replanted, right, but also taking care of the people and realizing that there are going to be knock-on effects, psychological effects, emotional effects for people for decades to come. 
Well, and you're so right about that. I continuously see people. I mean, we were we had a storm today and it was supposed to be really severe. It's supposed to be happening. We're under an alert for another couple of hours. Um, so we were, you know, I was asking you if you wanted to reschedule because I didn't want to put you in that if we were going to have, God forbid, another, you know, massive storm or anything like that, um, put you in harm's way. But um, I continuously see people have that PTSD, um, you know, when they see the trees shake when they they hear that that rumble of thunder um when they see the clouds darken and and I don't blame them mm-hmm. I don't blame them and and another kind of random reality is that you know we assessed our trees best that they could be right now mm-hmm. but we know that they took a serious beating and we saved as many as we could but that aside, there are still some that we don't even yet understand the full gravity of, of the damage. Um, you know, we lost 65% of our tree canopy, but it wasn't just 65% of, of, you know, small, like pretty trees. Mm-hmm. These were hundred plus year old trees, extremely established. And that again is a lifetime of devastation. Um, in my lifetime, I will never see Cedar Rapids look the way that it was what I can do now, along with many others, is, you know, work to replant and replace everything that we can and more mm-hmm. um, to help build that climate resiliency. Um, but I get it. I get why people have that that feeling, that traumatic feeling and that anxiety when, you know, when we get a weather alert, because we just never know. Again, having checked the weather that morning, it was supposed to maybe rain, mm-hmm. but it might've been light and bikeable. So, and then this came out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. These are devilishly difficult to forecast more than a couple hours ahead. Uh, I've been a nerd on them since 98 and I had a, a pretty good idea. It was going to be nasty by probably nine thirty or 10 in the morning, but it's just, just like the coronavirus. It was a novel thing for most people. And that's terrifying that, you know, in Iowa, we're used to tornadoes, we're used to floods, but we're generally used to, okay, well, it's going to rain for the next week, so better be ready for flooding. Or, you know, generally, if there's going to be a tornado watch, you know that that's coming maybe the day before. It's unusual for something like this to just pounce on folks. And, And to your point about, you know, how people are you know, gun shy this afternoon, one year anniversary. And then, yeah, you're watching a line of stuff come in. Of course, people are going to be nervous because it's like your trust was violated by the weather. And it's going to take a while for people to come to a new equilibrium. But even that's impossible because the climate change stuff going on. I was just reading this morning, we've had so much air quality uh, alerts from Western wildfire smoke. So, which is further insulted by the fact that we don't even have our trees to protect us further. I mean, right? it's just, it shouldn't be impacting us the way that it is. But when you are a tree city recognized by the Arbor Foundation, we're known as the Emerald City in some respects, and have lost 65% of your tree canopy of established trees. Yeah, we're, we're in for, uh, 
a pretty bad air quality mm -hmm. um, predicament here for a sustained amount of time. And even scarier, as I was just reading research this morning, that wildfire smoke becomes more toxic the further it travels from the fires. So the smoke that we're dealing with is mostly from California and Oregon, although I see that there's some new fires in both Washington and Montana. Uh, and, you know, the, the particulate matter interacts with uh, free radicals in the atmosphere, ionizing radiation and stuff, and just turns it into particularly nasty stuff. And you've got all that on top of a respiratory pandemic. And right. it's just like you've lost your tree canopy. It, you just have overlapping layers of crises, and it takes a toll on everybody. Yeah, it, it surely does. I wanted to get back to uh, just kind of talking with folks about um, how you and I met. So what I remember is you rolling up on your bike and uh, we met in Iowa City because we were trying to get um, a new Leaders Council of Eastern Iowa chapter started. And the reason I bring this up is because New Leaders Council really helps to invest and uh, create progressive leaders that then kind of infiltrate whatever professions, whether that's politics or healthcare or arts or nonprofit worlds. And you had showed up to raise your hand to be a part of this, but we really failed to get kind of that necessary, you know, critical mass of people to get this going. And what's hard is, you know, I have a great partner in you in the corridor. Um, I know in Johnson County specifically, there are a handful of others that I've collaborated with pretty consistently, but it's tough when I know that there are really awesome people out there. But when it comes to working together cohesively, working towards a whole, uh, towards investing in you know a greater good, mm -hmm. let's say Eastern Iowa, not everybody has the capacity and not enough people are stepping up. And what I mean by that is it can't just be the same people time mm -hmm. and time again, because burnout is real. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of work to be done. And I know, you know, there's that, that anecdote, many hands make light work, but it's so true. And we need more people to identify themselves uh, to realize that this is really how we make good communities. And I just, it's something that I still hope happens at some point in time, but um, I just am really appreciative of the fact that you've been consistent over the years for like five years now I've known you. Um, and then we reconnected on Twitter when I started learning that word derecho. And um, I wanted to title this episode to the rescue because really, you know, you had identified yourself like you did five years ago saying you wanted to step up for Eastern Iowa to invest in the leadership here. But you had stepped up and, you know, said, Hey, I've been through this. I have some experience. How can I help? Mm -hmm. And it was a pretty blank check. <laughs> How can I help? Where does that motivation come from to help people that you're not specifically tasked with? Well, because I've been the recipient of that help many times, whether it was when we had the derecho and lone tree, you know, just a, a lifetime of a thousand different random acts of kindness, you know, just wanting to ensure that I'm doing my part to, you know, maximize the good in the world. Uh, you know, I'm a deeply sensitive person and, you know, it sucks to see people in pain. But you also had one key critical skill 
that was very, very essential to Cedar Rapids. And that was that you knew how to cut down trees, mm -hmm. um, trees that should be cut down or trimmed. And so because you knew, what's the appropriate term? Tree doctor? I am not, but the if you have the certification and training, it's an arborist. Okay. I've worked for a couple different tree outfits, Eleanor's dad, Moonlights as a tree guy. Uh, and so, you know, I've been around it. I, we heat our house with wood, so I have to run the saw quite a bit throughout the year. And, you know, if, if I hadn't had that experience, I still would have tried to figure out a way to help just because of the magnitude of the thing. Yeah. And, you know, it's just heartrending to, to see so many people in such a difficult spot, but it worked out well. And, you know, had a lot of, had a lot of help, you know, somebody, uh, bought out Casey's entire uh, stock of ice. So I was able to bring up a bunch of ice, raise some money, because it isn't just about chopping the trees down. Uh, so brought a bunch of beer. Yeah. That's important. Yeah. Well, it, it certainly helped uh, reward people after, you know, a day of hard work. But I think what was really incredible, and I ended up uh, summarizing this in an endorsement for you, which was so incredibly easy to write. Um, but what what I will never forget, and there are many heroes that made you know our resiliency happen, um, that helped us get back to some sense of normalcy, whatever that may look like in this kind of new day um, post derecho. But I was surveying, you know, after making sure everything was good in the emergency room, I was taking my vacation. I was descending on addresses that I knew about that had identified themselves with whatever help I could. Um, and, and you took, you always took the hard cases one. Um, but even on the way to and from work, I would jot down addresses of homes that I saw that still had trees on there, particularly if they'd been there a couple of days, particularly the hard ones and intersections and addresses that people had sent me online. And I just turned them over to you. You know, you'd tell me what day you could come down and about how much time you had. And I, you know, apologetically said to you, I was like, I don't know them. So this is totally a cold call help mm -hmm. for, you know, tree derecho mm -hmm. repair. Um, but you went to their, those homes and just helped however you could. So what was that experience like? Well, I mean, it's like you look around and it's just like you were saying earlier, you're still having trouble finding contractors. It's like mm -hmm. no matter what, it's got to be all hands on deck because uh, that's the only way to get it done. And it still took months and months and months. Yeah. And, and there's still work that needs to be done. You're still going to continue to identify trees that are injured beyond salvage. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's not a it's not a question of, you know, do you know the right people? It's not a question, certainly not a question of uh, can you pay? Uh, right. Because, you know, it would have been a great time to be a professional tree worker. Right. Um, I tried to get... I'm not going to say who, but I tried to get somebody to come up and do some volunteer work who had the equipment to really tackle some of the bigger jobs that I couldn't do with just a, a rope and a saw. And, you know, he was like, I made 22 grand in cash this weekend. I'm, I'm going to ride this for all it's worth. And, you know, more power to you, but there's a lot of people in this town right. that can't afford that. There's a lot of people who their insurance is not going to cover that. 
FEMA ain't going to cover it. You know, right. we can, we can get help to folks after the fact, but if I can show up and, you know, do an afternoon's worth of work that would have cost somebody five or 10 grand just because of the scarcity of arborists right afterward, hell yeah, I'm going to do that. But you, it's just, it just blew my mind that I don't even know how many days cause I lost track after a while, but you consistently, you know, were giving me more and more days that you could come back and just had a real, uh, vigor with, you know, with your motivation to assist us. And again, certainly it was all voluntary. Um, but when you went to these homes and, you know, presented as the cowboy, um, at least to, to an observer, um, what was that conversation like? Oh, it was, it was all over the map because, you yeah. know, you're meeting a lot of people on one of the worst days of their life. That's right. Uh, in, you know, very variable circumstances. Some people, uh, I remember there was this one guy, he was probably like 75 and spent as much of the time helping him, asking him to just let us do it because, you know, he was going to have a heart attack. He had, he was, I think he was recovering from heart mm. surgery and he wanted to be out there. And it's like, no, please sit down, drink some water. And, you know, you could tell us what to do. We're fine with that. Uh, you know, with some people, it was, you know, almost like a party atmosphere because a lot of the jobs, you know, we just have to wait for more volunteers to show up. And it's just an ad hoc group because you need more people, more hands to tackle something. And then, you know, a couple blocks worth of people all show up and it's just like, all right, this is what we got to do. We're going to do it. Yeah. And you know what? Um, there were so many days. I just think about not only your help, uh, but I think about the other friends that I really, you know, uh, pulled out all my friend cards mm -hmm. with and ask them, hey, um, coming out from work, see this really bad intersection, it's not cleared yet, uh, you know, do you think that you can come and meet me in this intersection? And I don't know how many times in my life I'll be able to pull that where I just ask somebody to meet me in a random intersection and help clear debris from it. But uh, thank goodness for the friends that I did have, like yourself, who assisted in that capacity. And every single time that we did that, every single time, Neighbors came out and said, you know what? I can do a little bit, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and we would end up doing it all together because so many times they were nervous about lines or something like that. I know that you had the expertise to understand a difficult, complex situation like that. So did the other friends that I had, uh, particularly those in the unions uh, that came out mm -hmm. and understood whether it was a live wire or something that was not currently active and we could just kind of roll up and mm -hmm. put to the side safely. Um, but it was difficult. There, like you said at the beginning, there was just so much work to do um, that I just really appreciate everybody who descended on Cedar Rapids to help out in whatever way that they could. And I've got some pictures, folks, that I wish that you could see as I'm talking right now. But I've got some pictures of John shimmied up a tree. And that's that's the imagery that I have <laughs> in my head is that that you were all over Cedar Rapids in whatever places I could identify just you know, doing your part and then some. So thank you. Oh, of course. Uh, what, one thing does come to mind. I had just finished helping a gentleman get an old walnut off of his back fence. And I was leaving and I got behind two of your city trucks and they were full up 
a waste. And one of them clipped a low-hanging wire because all the wires were low-hanging because all your utility poles got clobbered and made a big mess in the center of, I can't remember which street it was. And so, you know, they get out and they're looking around and I'm like, hey, I got a chainsaw. And so I was able to whack it up for your <laughs> city folks. Uh, and, you know, it's just stuff like that. But too often, well, maybe not too often because this is the society we live in, but often, you know, people, am I going to get paid? What sorts of liability am I opening myself up to? Uh, and, you know, that sometimes... Sometimes you just have to put those concerns aside and do what needs to be done. Yeah. And, you know, the reality is I will never have a full list or understanding of all the people's homes that you went to. Um, but I'm just I, continuously grateful for the way that you showed up for me, that you continue to show up for your constituents. And I'm, I'm going to do kind of a hard segue into the fact that you're now in a new role mm -hmm. in politics. Um, again, I was talking about your endorsement that I that I gave. Uh, was one of many people that was super excited about your run for Johnson County Supervisor. But I also really appreciate the fact that you took a call with my with my Bubby, who you now serve <laughs> in Johnson County. Um, and I remember telling her, I was I said, Bubby, we're going to get this cowboy elected, and he's he he is. I could not be more excited to have somebody like him looking after you. So congratulations. Thank you. County Supervisor Thank Green. You. I hope I don't screw it up. I don't think you're going to. You know, it's one thing that we have to realize as an elected official is no matter how good we are at this, no matter how experienced we are, we cannot be everyone's everything. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of becomes like a juggling act where you're spinning plates. And as soon as you get these you know, the right hand spinning, then you got to get the left hand spinning and then you have to remember mm -hmm. to get the right hand spinning again. And, and so you're not going to mess it up because I trust in, you know, your sound judgment. I believe in your values and ideals, but what are some of the things that you're hoping to accomplish uh, in this new role? So I ran a lot on the equitable distribution of our American Rescue Plan money. Johnson County is getting $29.3 million there, so that's a big thing, but something that, you know, I'm sure you're aware of when you come in, you know, it's not like Johnson County came into being with my election. There had been a lot of stuff going on, and the supervisors already had, you know, a plan for how they wanted to determine to do that. So it's trying to figure out the best way politically to work with the other supervisors to respect the immense amount of work that they've already done while also, you know, nudging them in my direction toward my goals. And it has been an awful lot, you know, it's been about two months now. And that's not the only part of the job. It's you know, 1% of the job. Right. And, and you really hit the ground running, to be fair. Well, I had so, to, you know. Yes. Uh, Special election mm -hmm. came in one-handedly, handedly, uh, was happy to celebrate with a beer with you uh, when you did win. But I wasn't really worried about it. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the 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 nominating convention was a mo much closer uh, question there. But uh, the other folks who were 
running for the Democratic nomination uh, were excellent helping. You know, we all came together and there's always that concern that, you know, the various wings of the party, you know, well, was it Willie Nelson? I'm not a member of an organized political party. I'm a Democrat. Mm. Uh, <laughs> that sounds uh, pretty accurate. Or Yeah, and uh, yeah, by the time it was election day, I'm a worrier, so I was worried, but it, it came through all right. But then, yeah, it was... That was one Tuesday. It was a week for them to canvass the vote. Noon the next Tuesday, I got sworn in. Somebody, I didn't even know what was going on. Somebody took my picture five minutes later, came back with my ID badge, said, here's your badge, there's your office, and then disappeared. And that was orientation. And we celebrated with a colonel's game. Yeah, that so, was, we're yes. going to have to do that again. Yes, I agree. I agree. It was really great to have you and Eleanor here. Um, I, I do hope you come back to District 5 and enjoy a Colonel's game Absolutely. before the season's over. But, um, and, and so what is, I mean, so I know that you're interested in climate as well. Mm -hmm. um, climate resiliency, you're uh, well invested in the topic of climate change. You and I have had conversations about PFAS. And again, going back to some of the things that we've spoken about in this conversation, we have to have that networking and that collaboration, uh, not just in thought, but in policy, when we're looking at these big issues that impact Eastern Iowa. We have a lot of waterways here, but the reality is PFAS is going to get into all of our water systems. And um, so managing that collectively is going to be important as well. Yeah, there are a zillion climate imperatives, whether you're talking about the four forever chemicals and water supplies, you know, the first question is, whose responsibility is it? Right. And that is a thorny question that, frankly, is going to take years of litigation to sort out. Next question is, what are we going to do about it? Yep. The reason we call them forever chemicals is because that's a sticky widget. Which, unfortunately, to your prior point, we don't have. I mean, it's happening now. It's impacting us now negatively. So while it might be in litigation, mitigation has to happen immediately. Mm -hmm. And whose responsibility is that? Right. So there are so many interlocking pieces there, and that's just one class of chemicals that we have to worry right. about. We also have, you know, the, uh, uh, the United Nations Climate Report came out yesterday. Pretty harrowing. Pretty harrowing. And it's like, how many more reports do we need? Uh, you right. know, it's, it's clear but then it's also like, you know, I was just at the office all day today. What did I do? I had meetings that I had to have, but it's I didn't do anything on climate today. I wrote some tweets. That's not enough. And you know what? Um, part of the reason that it's herring is there are certainly a lot of people. I'm not saying I'm an expert. I'm saying that I'm passionate mm -hmm. about things like solar, electricity, uh, wind power. Um, you know, I'm trying to role model sustainability and reduce chemical usage in my own life. Matter of fact, yesterday I was trying to take the weeds out of my sidewalks, chemical free. Mm -hmm. I've been committed to that for about three years now as I've trying to, you know, do my own education. But as I was walking by and apologizing to somebody who was walking past with their dog, I said, I'm really sorry. It's pretty messy here. I was thinking about as a dog owner myself, the fact that their dog's going to get, you know, kind of dirty and maybe track it into the house. 
and uh, this passerby said, oh, you know what I just did that worked? Um, I just dumped Clorox on it the other day. And I thought it's literally right by, literally right by an open drain into the sewer. And I just thought, oh my gosh, how are we, how are we going to accomplish this? Yeah, it's, it's so daunting that it, it's very easy to just throw up your hands and say, this is too big of a problem. But at the same time, it's too big of a problem to ignore as well. And so you have to, I have to balance pushing as hard as I can, which is a political question against, you know, being able to sleep at night. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of nights I have trouble sleeping. Uh, it's because I look around, I see all the problems in the world, I see what people are going through, and it just keeps me up nights. It's part of the reason I ran for office is because yeah. I want to help. But now that I'm doing this, instead of being a computer janitor for a financial services firm, you know, then the expectation was, well, I'm helping rich people figure out where to park their ill-gotten gains. Now it's like, okay, I really do have a responsibility to the 160,000 residents of Johnson County and, and to the region. You know, it's, you're a city council member in one ward, but your responsibility does not end at the end of your ward. It does not end, you know, at the city limit. It doesn't even end at the county. We work together. Right. You have to embrace regionalism. You have to be open-minded and curious and look around and see what other folks are doing that's working and see if you can steal that. Uh, and, you know, my my hope is that I do one or two things over, you know, my term or terms as supervisor that somebody else somewhere can steal and that I find other things to steal myself. Because uh, there's just so much stuff going on that, you know, even if you could somehow magically and surgically remove COVID, COVID never happened. Even if you could do that, being a county supervisor, being a council member of a very large city, it's a daunting prospect, even when you don't have the pandemic crisis. Hell, even if you remove climate from it. There's a lot going, you know, how much is it fair to pay public works employees? Uh, how much should we invest in what, which roads? Uh, you know, there's just a million questions every day before you put the stuff that keeps you up nights into the mix. And so, you know, I have to be humble and curious enough to be ready to go out and see what somebody else has done and try and adapt that to Johnson County rather than thinking that I need to, you know, be the genius and come up with anything myself. Well, we're pretty darn lucky to have you. And like I said, I feel very um, committed to that certainty and the fact that you get to watch over um, Century Farms, for example, like my bubbies and like my families. Um, so thank you for your service repeatedly for Iowans. Likewise. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. But you know what trying uh, your hardest also feels like someday? Maybe on a good day, 70% of people don't hate you. Yeah. And that might be a good day. So we, we do our best. It's it's hard. Yeah, and it's like that is a good day because if it's 
70%, that probably means the other 30% aren't paying attention. Uh, because, you know, it's some people think you're going too far. Some people think you're not going far enough. And, you know, for anybody in the audience who's also an elected official who has made the transition from advocacy to governing, you and I, we believe the same things we did yeah. when we were campaigning. But now, because of the way that everything works, whether it be legal, whether it be political, we have to be a little bit more mindful of, you know, what we talk about, how we say some things. And, you know, there's some people that are absolutely pissed off at me because of the campaign that I ran. And then there are also other people who are understandably pissed at me because they like the campaign that I ran. Yeah, but, <laughs> you, you know why haven't I burned the system down yet? And it's like, it's it's frustrating for me, but it's yeah. also, you know, government is designed to be slow. Inertia is the, you know, universal constant of a bureaucracy as it wants to do what it has always done. It wants to do it in the same way that it has always been done. And it takes time to change that. And I have to... Not so much remind my constituents, but remind myself that I am but one person and that I do need to have a little bit of patience for myself. That's something I need to work on. Well said. I have often phrased it as it is really hard work to do, but it is always work worth doing. Yes. And I don't want anybody who's listening to get the wrong idea either, because I constantly tell people who are doing social advocacy work keep yelling at me, keep dragging my ass. Yep. Uh, number one, because I'm going to screw up. But number two, because, you know, I need to be able to show everybody else that I'm working with that I'm not just one kook, that there's a lot of people who feel strongly about these same things that I feel strongly about and that they're pissed off at me that I'm not moving faster because that helps develop the political arguments. And so, yeah, you have to have thick skin. And honestly, I cannot tell you, you know, I had known to a degree as an idea, but I have seen stuff since I've been elected that it is very clear to me that women, that minorities come in for so much more abuse than I do. Uh, being a straight white dude in a cowboy hat, you know, people think twice about saying shit to me that, you know, they're going to unfortunately say without a second thought to a lot of other people. And so I'm also trying to balance how can I, you know, help those folks? How can I help women that are elected and minorities that are elected without, you know, developing a white savior complex? Uh, and I think you've done a good job of that. Well, I do, because you. you've been a great friend, an inspiration to me, and um, I think you understand the complexities of sometimes what I experience, whether it's it's something that I've, I don't know, brought on myself that's coming to me because of my age, that's coming to me because of my age and gender, mm -hmm. maybe it's just my gender or something, but sometimes uh, unusual experiences find my way that... I couldn't ever imagine as a constituent, I would put on an elected official mm -hmm. and it's hard to know how to engage with that and how to respond because in some capacities, 
I feel like if I say nothing, will they use that against me? If I engage, mm-hmm. will I say the wrong mm-hmm. thing? If I'm a human and I just say, that's really inappropriate what you just said to me, um, you know, will that be used against me? And so oftentimes you are kind of put in this really um, difficult situations where you you kind of just take whatever is coming your way, but it it makes the work even more difficult than it needs to be. Mm-hmm. There, it, it's not even a double standard. Thank God we saw what happened in New York today with Cuomo yes. finally resigning. But far too often, it's not that there's a double standard. It's that there is a standard for women and minorities, and there's not for men. You know, we're bores. You know, we're jerks. We're assholes. Which, quite honestly, we have supplied plenty of evidence to all three of those assertions but you know you being a woman well are you wearing makeup is it too much makeup is you know is it the wrong kind of makeup is it ethically sourced are you buying local <laughs> and you know so true nobody yeah. nobody asked me about my makeup yeah well for the record if you've got makeup on it looks great well thank you <laughs> And, you know, it's just, it is a difficult thing to balance because it's important to me. But at the same time, I also know that, you know, the solution isn't going to be what I do. The solution is going to be us as a society determining that it just isn't okay to treat anybody the way that so many non-straight white dudes get treated as elected officials. I understand that it's been a rough 18 months. I know that we've all been isolated and scared and tired. But, you know, you look, it's everywhere. It's not just elected officials. You look at the abuse that service workers are taking, whether it's in restaurants, whether it's somebody in Walmart getting shot because they're asking somebody coming through the front door to put on a damn mask, whether it's the uh, the guy who got duct taped to his chair on the Frontier flight the other day because he was groping two flight attendants and then punched a third. You know, we're seeing a coarseness in, you know, society. And that's also something I struggle with because... We look at the last five years, especially since Trump was elected, and look at a little bit bigger picture than the offices that you and I hold. We look at Iowa, and we see how Iowa's been trending red. And so it's like the the, the debate that I have internally is, you know, we just can't tolerate this shit. we got to push back. We have to lay down a marker, and we have to, you know vigorously defend our ideals, our principles, our values. We can't shy away from that. But I know that that's probably just in terms of the general malaise of looking around and knowing that there's so many problems that I'm not personally solving today. I think the biggest thing that I grapple with that bothers me is trying to figure out where that balance lies. Because you know that I pretty much live on Twitter and, you know, I try and make that balance, but I know that I don't always. And it's also frustrating because I look around and I see 
how other people take abuse. And no matter whether I'm polite or maybe a little rough around the edges, that abuse never comes to me. You know, very rarely. Somebody somebody did send all five of the supervisors a nasty gram last week about uh, changing the uh, the person that Johnson County is named after. We didn't rename Johnson County, but instead of being named after a slave-holding vice president, now Johnson County is named after Dr. Lulu Johnson, who was one of the first black students at then the State University of Iowa, which I think is still its legal name, and that is a hill I will die on on Twitter. <laughs> it's the State University of Iowa, you cretins. Uh, also, uh, but we're still black and gold, right? Yes. Okay, I, well, then that's it. And a neat little historical bow tie, uh, first cousin to Duke Slater. Okay. Who uh, was a University of Iowa football player. Who we're naming the field after. Who we are naming the field after. Well, the, the university is doing that. Yes. And so we get this email, and it's, you know, it's written like, it was written by somebody who was deranged, and it looks like a copy-paste job. You know, I think there's probably some literature from a KKK, you know, membership brochure or something. And, you know, so I replied. I said, I have added your email to the pile that doesn't support this, and it's a new pile. And it's right next to the overwhelmingly large pile of people who do support it. And I hoped, you know, that would be enough. Well, no replies back. Well, how dare you? That's a hell of a way for you to reply or something. And That was probably the nicest way you could have replied well, to you, such an audacious Yeah, yeah. Uh, and once I got the, the reply back, I, I said, okay, well, I'm done with this. Uh, there was a question in the initial email, you know, how much are you going to spend putting up a monument or something to that effect? which I didn't address. I just said, I see you don't support it, noted. And then I got the second unhinged email, and I'm just like, you know, I didn't even know we were talking about putting up a monument, but thank you for bringing it to my attention. I'll see that it happens. Sounds like a really great idea, actually. Just, well, I mean, it, it's just wrestling with stuff like that, because I know I'm not going to change their mind. Yeah. The, 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 the final email, or, or the final sentence in the first email before make America, keep America great again or whatever was, you know, we will see you removed at the polls. So it's like, clearly this isn't going to resolve anything. Right. And it, it's not going to help anything for me to be an ass just to get my rocks off. But I am human and I only have so much patience. And, you know, the tone of the email, I'm also cogent of the fact that you know, we have a woman of color sitting on the board of supervisors who also received that email and who is also amazing. Yeah. And even more amazing, given the consideration that I'm sure that she gets stuff like that, that is just addressed to her. And, you know, it would probably be a very interesting project for somebody who wanted to document the difference in how different looking, different identifying people get treated as elected officials if you were to FOIA her email and mine. Yeah. Uh, because I'm sure that you would see 
a significant gulf in some of that subject matter, and certainly in the tone. Do you consider yourself a feminist? Yeah. I mean, I, I See, think this that's... Is, this is just, not that I'm surprised. I just, I felt, I don't know, I felt compelled to ask because I truly see that solidarity that you provide in advocating for rights for women. And it just, it, it does make a big difference. You know, you can't change who you are, um, how you identify, but, you know, the fact that you can look out for the rest of us and how we are and identify really makes a big difference. Good. Thank you. I mean, that that's... <laughs> And I say thank you because I appreciate hearing that. It means a lot to me that, you know, people notice and hopefully it makes a difference. But I also never want it to be performative. You know, I would rather that nobody ever said thank you for being an ally or thank you for being an accomplice ever in my life. I like that, accomplice. There's some discussions over which term is better and circumstances and whatnot, but I'd rather never be thanked for being either ever again if I could just change some people's minds on the other side. And again, that's the that's the whole thing. You don't want it to be performative and empty, but at the same time, it is my responsibility to model good behavior. And, you know, it's just such a complex world. Sometimes I do get lost in my own head trying to figure out how to strike these balances when at the end of the day, I should probably just suck it up and do the right thing. Well, the good thing for all of us here in the corridor in eastern Iowa is that uh, you are consistently doing good things. You consistently show up for us, not just Johnson County, not just Lone Tree at the time, um, but for all of us. And I really want to thank you for coming on um, to the New Bohemians podcast today. It means a lot to have your friendship, your solidarity. Um, your expertise, whether that be in helping to cut limbs off of homes of people we don't know the names of, um, or, you know, working on climate justice and climate resiliency. Um, it makes a difference when we can band together. And it means a lot to me, again, knowing that you can look out for families like mine in Johnson County, since I have a lot of family in Johnson County. Um, and, just thank you. Thank you for stepping up and for serving. We are all in this together, and thank you for your service. Thank you for your friendship, and thank you for your solidarity. All right. I think it's time for more beers. Yes, and a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> On that note. Thank you again for joining me for this episode of the New Bohemians podcast. It is so important to stay connected to voices at the ground level. You won't want to miss these stories, so make sure to subscribe to the New Bohemians podcast wherever it is you listen to podcasts. To increase the voice of the community, please consider sharing this episode with a friend, loved one, or on your social media to keep the conversation going. Like all good things, this podcast creates space for local voices to be heard. We share the mic and work to lift these voices to create a better community. Thanks to Rocket App for our beautiful Bohemian cover art. The New Bohemians podcast is produced in conjunction with Particulate Media, K.O. Myers, executive producer. My thanks for tuning in today. I'm your host, Ashley Van Orney. We look forward to connecting with you again 